Well, welcome to this week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host and producer of the Happy Hour, Olga Peters, and we are talking today about healthcare and healthcare costs and healthcare options. And we're going to be talking about them with regular contributor Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Hello, and good morning, Olga. Good morning. Yes, we are pre-recording in the morning, in case you're wondering about this lovely light that's waxing over all of us. I want to welcome to the show Mike Fisher, who is from the Office of the Vermont Healthcare Advocate, which is under the umbrella of Vermont Legal Aid. And they're a free resource for anyone in Vermont who has healthcare questions. What is the best plan? What is the most affordable plan? What am I eligible for? How do I solve this billing dispute, anything like that, you can take to the Office of the Healthcare Advocate. And so glad you can be joining us today, Mike. Good morning. And why don't I just respond right off, you know, advice for people who are listening to this or any other presentation on healthcare. Hey, we're going to say things today that you might say, hey, this affects me. What should I do about it? My general message is, don't take advice about your own personal situation from somebody on Facebook or on the on a show. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to call somebody who can walk through the situation for you. And there's a number of people in our community that can help communities that can help with that. But uh, my office, the Office of the Healthcare Advocate, has a team of advocates who are on the phone. Not quite at this time of the morning, but who are on the phone every day helping Vermonters negotiate, uh, navigate this horribly complex system and and give advice for people to make the best choices they can. And so, you know, I think we should just keep hounding on, you know, if you have questions for your own personal decisions, you know, get advice for your family. And I'll just say the Office of the Healthcare Advocate is a free resource and uh, there's no uh, income eligibility. All you have to be is a Vermonter. And even that we stretch sometimes. (laughs) There are Vermonters who are away at school, for instance. And so, you know, 800-917-7787 is our phone number. And if you have questions, if you have things that are not quite working, feel free to give us a call. Thank you, Mike. And yes, their service is wonderful. I don't know about other people out there, but I go through the healthcare forms and everything snow blind after a while so it's nice to know there are people in the state who who that's their job is to walk us through these problems let me also say i also have a caution about taking advice from somebody who's trying to sell you something that's probably always good advice (laughs) yes we're not part of an insurance company we're not we, we are you know connected to the state because we're funded through the state and defined in state statute but we're not we're not vermont health connect we're not Blue Cross. Uh, we're not UVM. We're not a hospital. You know, we are intentionally independent of all those parties. Well, Mike, let's uh, kind of start there since we are in the season of open enrollment and the Medicaid redetermination process. Yeah. Start there. What's happening right sure. now for a lot of people? So I don't know if anybody remembers the pandemic. <laughs> I do. I do. <laughs> You know, because of the pandemic, the federal government, I think, did a great thing. It said, hey, states, you can't cut anybody off of Medicaid. We're going to give you some extra money, 
you bump in your federal match rate, which is a lot of money, but you can't cut anybody off of Medicaid during the public health emergency. That lasted for a little over three years. But then at the end of that, the federal government said to the states, okay, it's time. You have to get back to your regular roles and make sure people who are on Medicaid are really eligible for Medicaid. You know, during those three years, we had uh, women who got on Medicaid because of their pregnancies continue to be on Medicaid, you know, for three years after their pregnancy. So there are clearly people who who continued to be on Medicaid who were no longer eligible. So that's what the you know that's what the process is. The, people who got laid off temporarily because sure. their business shut down and then they got a new job. Sure, exactly. So the federal government said you have to do it in the course of a year. And so they divided the in Vermont a little over 200,000 Vermonters into 12 bunches. And so every month a new group of Vermonters gets a, you know, gets, gets outreach and gets notification and uh, reminders that they have to be in touch with Medicaid to make sure they're still eligible. And how far into the 12 months are they? Uh, you know, I think March is the last regular month. So we're well on our way. You know, March followed up, followed by about two months of finishing the process for people. But the main thing to say to people is, hey, if you get a, a letter or a text or a card from Vermont Health Connect about your Medicaid, it's something to respond to. It's something that you you, you kind of have to deal with. You know, we have been pretty upset by the number of people who are getting closed because they don't respond. And I'll say I can be critical of Vermont Medicaid for things that I ha think they haven't done quite right. But I also have to recognize the federal government has said you have to do it. Mm -hmm. And they are sending texts and uh, doing all kinds of outreach. And so, you know, if you haven't gotten a note, if you're not used to having an annual redetermination, you know, Vermont families aren't used to it and maybe have moved. So it's it's a tricky job to reach out to that little over 200,000 Vermonters. And if people do get that card, any they, um, thoughts? I mean, they have to respond, mm -hmm. but anything that might help the process goes more smoothly? Yeah, I think respond quick. Recognize that that the state system for, you know, fielding phone calls is overwhelmed. We know that the helpline uh, that the um, that the Vermont Health Connect phone phone line can have very long wait times. It's very frustrating. So call at eight in the morning if you don't want to wait a long, long time. If you wait till you know three in the afternoon on a Friday, you're going to be on on hold for an hour. Little known state government secret. State employees work from 7.45 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. I don't know why. It's kind of ridiculous for the actual humans who have to do it. But it does mean that, like, you know, services are available at yep. 8 a.m. if that's what you're looking for. So definitely asking people to attempt to negotiate the system on their own, make the phone calls and, and respond, you know, with what's needed if something doesn't go right, if if you feel like the state is not responsive or is getting something wrong or there's something messed up about your case, we are also a resource for that. And so 
if you need to be pointed in a, in a good direction on it or you need some assistance because of something that's messed up and things do get messed up, let's be clear, you know, I'm going to give that same number again, 800-917-7787. You can also look us up online and we have an online help tool. So you can also write it down to us. We're trying to help people through the system. Wonderful. And so let's say someone is not eligible for Medicaid anymore. And so yeah. they now are going to try to find insurance in the marketplace. What does that look like for them this year? There's overlapping issues because we are also in open enrollment. But aside from the regular open enrollment period uh, that we're in, somebody who uh, loses their Medicaid because they've become ineligible at any time of year gets an individual, a special enrollment period for them and their family. And so, and Mike, um, that's true anytime anyone loses insurance, right? It's not just losing Medicaid. It's like if you lost a job or. That's right. That's right. Or you lost your insurance because of a divorce or uh, a move, or you turned 26 and had to come off your parents' plan or anything like that. It's the same system here in Vermont. Vermont Health Connect does both Medicaid and the private insurance companies through the exchange. And so if a family finds themselves just over the Medicaid limits, there are really substantial supports for people. You know, I'll just say it again, really substantial supports. I think, you know, don't panic. You know, there there are, you know, both federal tax credits and state and federal cost-sharing subsidies to help people who are, you know, low, low income, uh, but just above Medicaid. So, Mike, I was recently sort of like wondering about the idea of buying a new car or a used car, just like a car that was new to me. And one of my colleagues had just gotten a new car and is very involved in the transportation industry and transportation policy and told me about like this just remarkable way they were able to stack tax credits and make their car be a reasonable price. And I just like was kind of overwhelmed at that idea and wanted to crawl under the table, even though, you know, I'm hypothetically a tax credit aficionado. And so when someone is buying insurance, like how do you figure out the difference between like the scary number that I read about in the paper and Mm -hmm. how much things will actually cost me? On Vermont Health Connect, there are tools that you plug in to, you know, to estimate your income and your family size, hopefully it's not an estimate. And, um, <laughs> um, but the wild card in this calculation, different than a car, the wild card in this calculation is how much healthcare are you expected, do you think you might need in the next year? Now, if you are 28 and you're fit and you're healthy and you don't have ongoing problems, uh, it's not a reason, it's not unreasonable to say, hey, I don't think I'm going to go to the primary, I should go to the primary care doc, you know, I should get a checkup, but I don't expect to need much more than that. So it's th- this is the, the wild card, Emily, the hardest thing for people to to really figure out because as we all know, you can step off a curb you can sprain your, you know, you can have, you can have an accident or you can get a bad diagnosis at any time of your life. And, and so this question about, you know, sort of generally, do I want to pay more in premiums and have to pay less in out-of-pocket costs if I need care? Or do I want to pay less in premiums and have more exposure, more potential out-of-pocket costs if I get, if I need care? That is the the wild card in that calculation. Mm-hmm. 
And the whole like out-of-pocket costs versus deductible versus copay, how yeah. does that sort of fit into when we see that our rates are increasing? Like how does that all fit mm -hmm. together? Well, I use the term out-of-pocket costs to group together deductible and copay and coinsurance. The three different versions at the at the end of the wait, what's coinsurance? At the end of the day, it is all money coming out of your pocket okay. when you get care, not when you pay your monthly premium bill. Uh, a deductible is an amount that you pay before you get coverage. You know, it, it can be seven hundred dollars or five hundred dollars or fifteen thousand dollars. It can be a lot of money and and copay is sort of a fixed amount that you expect to pay i'm going to pay 20 20 bucks when i go to the primary care doc kind of payment and coinsurance i think is you know is less common in uh, these plans but it is sort of a percentage of the care uh, above the deductible that you're going to continue to need to pay the, the best example of Co something that's like a coinsurance is in Medicare, ah. where uh, and Medicare is for older and disabled Vermonters, Americans, Vermonters, people who are over 65 or are eligible for Medicare due to a disability. Generally, Medicare pays 80% of the cost of care and 20% ongoing with no maximum is uh, is out-of-pocket cost. For people who think, ah, oh, everything's great, I'm on Medicare, I don't have to worry anymore. Medicare only covers- You don't have to worry. Right. <laughs> we all still have to worry every day. So, so you still need to buy, people still need to buy, if they can afford, a supplemental plan. And is Medicaid ever a supplemental plan to Medicare? Well, sure. In effect, you know, for people who are poor enough and- and I, I, maybe this is an opportunity for me to recognize people think you say the word Medicaid and it covers sort of, oh, I know what I'm talking about. There's one program for Medicaid. Not so. There are many, many complicated different programs that we call Medicaid. And, you know, people might know the difference between Dr. Dinosaur versus, you know, what, what we, we generally call Medicaid. I'll say Medicaid for uh, children and adults, MCA Medicaid. You know, so that's a, you know, we say here in Vermont that you can have, your family can have much more income and still get coverage for kids and pregnant people than, than the income eligibility for, than the income eligibility for, for families. And, you know, I wonder if I can give you a number, you know, so, you know, so if you're, eh, I'm not going to turn the math right. <laughs> Not at this hour of the morning. <laughs> that's right. But the most, the starkest difference that I think most people don't know is that the Medicaid program for people on Medicare, that is called MABD, Medicaid for the Age, Blind, and Disabled, is we've left that population behind. Hmm. The whole Affordable Care Act, and Vermont has a long history before that of really trying to improve access for younger and non-disabled Vermonters. You know, remember the Catamount program, remember VHAP. Mm -hmm. And certainly Dr. Dinosaur, all of that is for non-disabled under 65-year-olds. And we have not addressed the policy area, the Medicaid expand, the need for a Medicaid expansion for people on Medicare. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm wanting to talk about in the second half. And, oh, and I great. couldn't stop myself from doing it. <laughs> okay, so scary headlines, 
percentages are increasing, costs are increasing, inflation's increasing. Last week, we talked about the cost of schools right now. And yeah. one of the big pressures on the cost of school budgets is health insurance premiums. What is the story? How can all of that be growing so much faster than inflation? We know that a lot of inflation, like food cost inflation, is actually corporate price gouging and not like natural growth in the magic economy. So what is the story? So, you know, I think that most people want to sort of tell the story of the big bad boogeyman of insurance executives. And, and you know, if we were talking about some national actors, some for-profit actors, I would join quickly in that profit-taking. And, you know, hey, my job is to go up against Blue Cross and MVP in the insurance rate review process. And my office fights hard against uh, the rate increases every year. So I do think there are things we can do to bring down the cost. But by and large, I got to admit, the reason rates go up is because costs have gone up. So that's so confusing to me because I, as I sort of like hear the corporate healthcare national narrative, I want to jump on board because that's fun and satisfying. Mm -hmm. And I know that our healthcare in Vermont is like, you know, incredibly closely regulated. And I know that our health insurance companies are oh. nonprofits. And so I get very lost and like our hospitals are all nonprofits. And so I get very lost and confused about where the money is going. There's nothing simple about this. Apologies. No, that's why we have a whole hour. That's right. You know, so it's true that, you know, Blue Cross and MVP are nonprofits. And it's true that we regulate them that we have maybe one of the stronger regulatory systems in the country. But the majority of Vermonters in private health insurance are in a what's called a self-funded plan. And so, you know, their employer is purchasing, uh, you know, is in effect self-insuring and purchasing. Really, the majority of Vermonters? The majority of, yes, majority of privately insured Vermonters. Okay. Um, and strong majority. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's a lot of people. And that is not regulated. We are preempted by federal law. So I can't say to Emily, pass a law to do something about something that's wrong for this marketplace because it's the federal government. And Emily, as our state representative, can't do anything about it. Well, it's funny, Mike. I um, I think that health care policy is probably the area of sort of like legislative jurisdiction that I know the least about. And I think part of it is I showed up in the legislature and I was like, oh, wait, we can't actually control all the useful levers. I think I'm going to go off and do something else. <laughs> and then so I was like, oh, I'll focus on tax policy where we also can't control any of the useful levers. So I don't really know what I was thinking. But it is so confusing to me that we have this really strong reg regulatory regimen and yet we are where we are. And it seems, you know, I was now that I am the chair of Ways and Means, in fact, I do have a healthcare oversight role. Turns out there's a committee called the Joint Healthcare Oversight Committee, J HROC. HROC, Health Reform wow. Oversight Committee, HROC, which it turns out I'm on. And I, we had a meeting this fall for the first time in a while. And 
I was very struck by how much faster our healthcare costs are going up than it seems like the national norm. I, yeah. um, one of my colleagues asked a question that is where I'd been heading, which I wanted to just like write that all off to our aging population. And I was told that wasn't appropriate. And so like, what still, Mike, what is the story? Yeah, it's pretty upsetting to look at the rate of growth in in healthcare spending in Vermont compared to compared to the rest of the country. And it's hard for me to draw a simple conclusion uh, other than uh, you know we have not been holding, in my opinion, we have not been holding healthcare providers' feet to the fire, and uh, and really saying you know hey this is tough. These are tough decisions that you have to make, but somebody has to pay when costs go up and you know and, and again i can be all kinds of critical about details of it but I, i'm going to try not to go there now i think i think that because of how separate you know when when you're buying a car or even, let's make it simpler when you're buying a tire you know who's paying you know and you get to shop and you say here's the cost and here's the you know but in the world of health insurance and and so you, you know you can say like do other oh, people shop around for tires because i go to the same tire place all the time yeah. and i buy the tires that he tells me to so i i don't even know if this is a good example but let's continue on sorry but but sort of the concept if you're selling a tire the concept of the marketplace will allow me to raise my prices x amount yeah. in the world of healthcare because you have this middleman of the insurance companies and the confusing part we talked about earlier that people are trying to make a decision about how much to pay for in premiums and how much to pay, how much to be uh, exposed at out-of-pocket costs. You know, how does the market respond when UVM raises its prices by double digits? It's less clear. And by the way, I know you got to get a tire. You just got to have a tire to run your car, but um, it's... Uh, the dynamic of healthcare and people's, you know, need for care to keep them healthy mm-hmm. just makes it a different equation. I'm not sure I'm making this, the sense I want to make about this. It's expensive. Are, but- it's expensive largely because uh, we want care, and and because and I and I also think because we haven't held hospitals' feet to the fire over the last number of years. I think one of the one of the slides I think that were put in front of your committee last week, was that last week, was just recognizing that in Vermont, hospitals have gotten, I think it's 90, 98 or 99% of what they've asked for over the last number of years. Well, uh, that's a question I have for you. So I, you know, my hey, first- Emily, in- actually, I think, can you hold that question till after the break? No. Yes, yes, please. Because <laughs> unfortunately, we are at a time in the first half of the Montpelier Happy Hour. So we're going to hear from some underwriters and then resume our conversation with Representative Emily Kornheiser and Mike Fisher from the Office of Vermont Health Care Advocate. Welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, our community radio station. You can also find us, uh, thanks to BCTV, on many of the public access stations around Vermont and a little bit in the rest of New England. 
So we want to thank BCTV for their help on sharing the video version with the television stations. And Emily, what do we need to remind listeners of? Well, Olga, as a matter of fact, the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests, respectively, and not the station, nor their employers, nor friends. Lovely. Why, thank you. And if you're just joining us, I am your host and producer of the Happy Hour, Olga Peters. I'm speaking with Representative Emily Kornheiser, one of three from the town of Brattleboro, and Mike Fisher from the Office of the Vermont Healthcare Advocate. And we've been talking, surprise, surprise, about healthcare and costs and how sometimes that just seems frustrating. We can't see where our money's going. Right before the break, Emily, you had a question for Mike that I needed to cut you off for time reasons. Would you like to ask that now? I would, I would. So before the break, we were talking about how recently I was in a meeting and learned that we are spending more and other states. And my first instinct was our regulatory project has failed. And then my second instinct was it's because we have so many older Vermonters. And then that wasn't right. And now my third question is maybe it's not actually that we failed. Maybe it's actually we're failing less than other states because so many other states have shut down vast mm. swaths of their healthcare system. And so like I know out West, rural hospitals have shut down really across the board. And so access to care, which feels hard here in Vermont on the regular, my dad just moved here and has spent, has a lot of healthcare needs and has spent many months now attempting to even find a primary care doctor. But maybe it's actually that we are doing better on access because we are piecing together to keep our hospitals open. So you can just tell me that my hope is wrong, Mike, but what do you, what do you think of no, that? No, I, I think your, your question sort of points at the complexity of it all. You're right. Vermont scores well on you know, the quality of our healthcare system and the, and the health of Vermonters. Now that's for a lot of reasons. Some of them, you know, many of them cultural, but, you know, in, in my office, we argue both sides. People need access to the care they need and the cost is too much. But I think, you know, this whole sort of theoretical conversation about how much it costs and, you know, the kind of stuff you hear when you're in a legislative committee about healthcare costs, I think, you know, is a step too far away from regular people's experience for me. Mm -hmm. um, I think we often talk about in terms like people get the right care at the right time and we in health policy you know that that things are better when people get the right care in the right place in the right time but my experience is that more and more vermonters are forced into making economic decisions not healthcare decisions so they go to their doc and their doc says i think you really need this you need, you need this medicine or you need this test or you need um imaging or and, or maybe you don't even go to the doc because you already have a bill. That's where a major place where we feel like the system is falling apart for regular people. Mm -hmm. And that is, of course, a combination of cost and the systems of support we have for moderate and low-income people. Thank you for saying that, Mike. I, I think for, I don't know if this is true for you or, or Emily, I know for me, a lot of stress around healthcare, it still feels like Despite getting the health care plan and despite your premiums yep. and everything like that, your co-pays, health care costs still feel unpredictable. Yep. And not just like, oh, my gosh, I broke my I fell down a ladder and I broke my leg and I wasn't expecting that kind of unpredictable. 
the cost of prescriptions change or it, yeah. And that unpredictability when you are living on a tight budget. Yeah. Yeah. It's really scary. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It is, it is really scary. And it, and you know, I mean, what we hear from people is uh, that they love their doctor, that they appreciate the care they've gotten, that they think their provider, doctor, whatever needs care needs, needs to be paid, should be paid. And they also know they can't do it. They, that they have bills or that they're afraid of the bills that will come. And that ends in many people saying, I'm not going. I've got this going on. Maybe it'll get better. You know, from a health policy perspective, you know, we generally think upfront downstream care, you know, preventative care is, is what leads to better outcomes and less expense. And the cost of health care is interfering with that. Hmm. The cost on the consumer side. Right. Yes. From your perspective, as someone who hears a lot of these stories every day from people, where do you feel policy could change or should change? I started to talk about this in the first half. We feel like we have really left behind older and disabled Vermonters. And I say we, uh, I just want to recognize I'm not pointing my finger at anybody, any current policymakers. You know, me too. And full disclosure, Mike, you had you had your time in the ring, yes? Yes, indeed. Full disclosure, I was chair of the healthcare committee for a while. Um, I, you know, I was in the legislature for 14 years. And I want to recognize that we policymakers have focused so much on, on non-disabled under 65-year-olds. We still have more things we should do for them. I'm not suggesting in any way that we've achieved you know, the right place in support for low-income younger Vermonters. But we have we have forgotten about older and disabled Vermonters. So, you know, just as an example, if you're under 65 and you want to get Medicaid, and, you know, the income limit for regular Medicaid if you're under 65 is, for family one, is $1,676 a month, 1,600. Happy birthday. You just turned 65 and you turn around and you suddenly realize I'm no longer eligible for Medicaid. Wow. You know, let's, let's say you're $1,500 a month of income. Happy birthday. Suddenly the income limit for the Medicaid program that supports people on Medicare that covers cost sharing is $1,200 a month. Hmm. You know, that is a result, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act nationally really uh, sort of held, you know, uh, held states, it, it encouraged and supported the funding of Medicaid expansion mm -hmm. for the younger people, younger non-disabled people. But it, it didn't touch the Medicaid programs that for older people. And I'm using the term Medicaid a little bit loosely here. I'm saying Medicaid programs. There is a thing called Medicaid for older people, MABD, um, but there's also something, a Medicaid program that is that wraps around Medicare that goes a little bit, it goes to 100% of the federal poverty level and covers cost sharing. And I'm flying high. There's other programs that cover Medicare premiums, which are also very important and very supportable but for the moment, focused on full coverage. Mm -hmm. 
so and then also, I, you know, so, hey, that's the health policy. You know, you hear me talk in health policy terms of, you know, what happens when people don't have access to care. But this is an economic justice issue, mm -hmm. too. Who is poor and and uh, retired? Well, it's people that didn't earn as much through their lifetimes. Well, guess what? Women, people of color, certainly people who are lived with a disability, don't have access to the same earning potential. And let me just focus on women for a minute. I know it's more complicated than this, but it wasn't that long ago when you know women earned the the right to have a bank account. Yeah, it was not that long ago. Person. It was the 80s. Like, it's just credit cards were the 80s. Like, it's a wild thing, yeah. I think, for folks who didn't live through it, how recent history that was. So I, I, I'm not sure I have the math in front of me, you know, and I shouldn't try and do it right here. But for the 70 year old, you know, they lived their lifetime. And, and of course, we haven't caught up now. Let's recognize we're not, you know, we haven't achieved equality now. But for the 70 year old, she has lived her life through a time period where, you know, substantially less access to income and uh, and family dynamics and expectations to take time off from work in order to raise children and care for elders and uh, and the like. And so, hey, we see more that retirement, the Social Security earnings for women yeah. who are on Social Security right now are significantly lower. Not yeah, and, aside, right? like, you know, extra retirement. And I and I can give a few numbers there. Women over sixty five in Vermont have an annual income of about eleven thousand dollars less than men. Forty four percent of senior women don't have enough income to meet basic expenses. So, and Social Security, since you mentioned it, you know, women's lower earnings result in Social Security benefits that are fifty nine percent of what men earn, and so. The bill that we're pushing to increase access to full coverage for healthcare disproportionately, you know, it helps all Vermonters, but because women and people of color and uh, people who have lived with a disability are disproportionately poor, the bill does target this inequity that we've been living with and um, do a little bit to right uh, this wrong. Does the bill you mentioned or the the effort you're pushing, does it have a name just so people could yeah. follow it in the news, that type of thing? So it is H181 is the House version. Mm -hmm. Let me make sure I have that right. H, uh, I'm sorry, I did not. 118. And there's a Senate version, S61. And it raises the income eligibility for a program that's called MSP. I apologize. Everything in healthcare is misnamed or is confusing. Uh, MSP is called the Medicare Savings Program. And then you're going to say, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about Medicaid. It is called the Medicare Savings Program because it wraps around Medicare. Gotcha. It is a, a state-federal partnership with a match rate um, like other Medicaid programs. So we are seeking to raise the, the MSP li limits to make up some of this ground, avoid the cliff I talked about earlier. You shouldn't turn 65 or become eligible because of a disability and suddenly discover you have less care, less support for care. There's my pitch. And, you know, it, guess what? It's not cheap. It uh, does have a, a real expense. 
Mike, so if Medicaid is a federal program, and this is like, I know the answer to this question, but I'm asking you for the general yeah. public. Like, <laughs> that part. Then like, why can't we expand it, expand it to all the places we want to expand it? And if like feds will pick up the bill, how does that work? Well, it, it is a, a, a federal state partnership. I don't remember exactly what our match rate is. We get maybe maybe 55 cents on the dollar-ish for Medicaid programs. So the feds, you know, the feds are paying about 55 and the state's putting in about 45. Emily, I don't know if you have that number in your head. No, uh, I don't know. I don't have it in my head. But um, um, little known secret about the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, I do not retain numbers. Yeah. Just, so graphs, if you give me a graph, I will like remember the whole thing, but. So the state doesn't get to do anything it wants in Medicaid policy. It has to get federal approval. And the feds do care about where we, you know, where they put their money. Mm-hmm. But I got to tell you, a couple of our neighbors have done some heroic work here. Maine just passed a bill last year that substantially improves these programs. Maine they, is the other oldest state <laughs> in the country. Yeah just for our listeners yep. who are not mapping their demographics across their geography. New York last year, or maybe it was the year before, did a substantial improvement here. Massachusetts, Connecticut uh, are doing much better than us. So it's possible in other words. Yes. And, you so, know, I, and this is the tough thing that I get to say as an advocate to legislators, it does cost something and it does have to do with where our priorities are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that we don't have enough money to do everything we want to do. I know that and and fully recognize that my job is to put forward things that I know that the legislature you know, that's challenging to do. You know, mm-hmm. by the way, we got to deal with housing and yeah. um, education and everything else. And I know it. I've been in that in, in those shoes before. Well, and we know that when we deal with housing and education, we actually even save healthcare costs down the line, right? Like the and, biggest... and vice versa. Yes. You know, I mean, yes. Yeah. One of the biggest drivers of, you know, yeah. good health is actually good housing young when you're younger. So, so I am I have to ask so, you, Mike, I'm the representative from Wyndham County from Brattleboro, yeah. right? Um, we are the heart of the Vermont Worker Center movement down here yeah. in Brattleboro and um a bunch of other advocacy organizations. And so like you know, you've been in this for a long time. You've thought about this really deeply. Like, it sounds like your ask this year is still nibbling around the edges. Like, sure. why? Why can't we? Why can't we really go big? Yeah. Well, well what does big look like, Emily? What would? How would you define big? Well, let me just let me answer that. Hey, I was chair of the healthcare committee when we were trying to do government finance healthcare. That was big. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we ran up against a brick wall and we could spend a whole hour talking about why that happened. Um, Can we do that uh, actually in like a little while? That would be fun. Sure. I'd love to. Okay. Maybe get Robin and I on. I think that'd be fun. You know, so people who are advocating for a whole system reform and who say you can't keep nibbling around the edges, we have to fix this system, whole, you know, the whole system. I'm afraid you're right. I mean, I know you're right. And I also, you know, as the healthcare advocate, I also have to recognize the political realities. You know, who is our governor? Who, you know, what is our partnership with the feds? Nothing simple here. And so while I'll always be a supporter for, you know, broad system, uh, healthcare finance system reform, I also, I, you know, have to take the steps that are in front of us. 
you know, to the family we were talking about earlier, the $1,500 a month earner family, you know, to her, you know, the change that we're proposing is not minor. It is not nibbling around the edges. It's saving her life, quite literally. So, you know, that's the push and pull that we always have to do in health in health policy and in every policy. Sometimes we can't do everything we want to do. We should still be pointing at it. We should still be working towards it. We should still be offering proposals to go all the way. And we have to take the steps that are available to us today. How is that for answering the question? Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. I do I just want to say really briefly, recognize that this proposal to raise the MSP limits has a lot of broad support. The Vermont NEA, the Hospital Association, the Worker Center, Disability Rights, Blue Cross Blue Shield, Bi-State Primary Care, and Alzheimer's Foundation. And I am sure I am leaving off a couple who are going to say, how come you didn't mention me? Because so everyone is the show, especially the last 52, the minute 52 of it. So I'm sure someone heard you leave yeah, businesses for VBSR. We think we don't have the final okay, but we've been talking to uh, Vermont Commission on Women. There's a lot of broad support for this proposal. We have just about five minutes left in the show. Are there any other proposals you're you're putting forward that you'd like to mention? Well, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say I have a proposal that we've put forward that I, I think is not ready. Okay. But I want to mention it. I think it's three years ago, we put forward a proposal that the legislature passed, thank you, Emily, to create a state program for undocumented children and pregnancies. That program took a little while to get up and running. It is up and running and and doing some real good. We think we have some, some work to do to help it run better, but... I have always felt like a next step, like, you know, I understand why we do pregnancies and children first, but that leaves a whole group of non-pregnant adults who were not giving access to care. And so we do have a bill that we've introduced to do just that. It sits on the wall in House Healthcare and in Senate Health and Welfare. To some degree, Emily, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a way to tee that up for next year. I think I need to give Medicaid a little bit more room to finish setting up the the system, and I also recognize that it also costs costs money because mm-hmm. because you know, now we're talking about not a state federal partnership. We're talking about a state only healthcare access. So, I mean, I'd be curious how much it does cost because one interesting thing that happens to me when I go to national conferences is that. We've expanded a suite of low-income tax credits to undocumented folks, mm-hmm. and it really like doesn't cost much of anything in the grand scheme of tax policy. And so it's really interesting to go to these national conferences, feel like celebrated and wowed for our groundbreaking work in Vermont, but know mm-hmm. that it was actually like a really easy political win because it was in some ways gestural. I think it'll make a real difference in some people's lives, but there weren't sort of tough decisions connected to it. And so I'm curious sort of how you see the landscape there. I think that's a good question. I think uh, we're going to run out of time, but I think, uh, you know, you also have to recognize when people get sick, at least when people need emergency care, they go to the hospital and get care. (laughs) And so if they are Low income, um, whether they're documented or not, they can't pay for it. And and it goes to the bottom line in uncompensated care. And so, 
you know, the question becomes, do you believe that giving people access to care up front saves money? And I do. I believe it's the right thing to do on a human level. And I also believe it's the right thing to do for, for outcomes and expense. Hey, a lot of the people who are here working in our communities without documentation are on the farms. This is not yeah. a safe job. No. And, and they get hurt. Emily, just in the last couple of minutes that we have at the break, I think you had mentioned social determinants of health. Yeah. Was there anything you wanted to tie into this conversation with that? I mean, you touched um, on I, it with housing, but. I think it's sort of broadly understood that, and maybe not, but just want to sort of name really explicitly that the biggest driver of someone's health is not actually health care. Right. It is housing circumstance, education, income, and then that winds up being costs on the other near the end near yeah. the end of life. And so when we've been having conversations, especially about housing and how we pay for housing, there's a lot of emphasis around how Medicaid can fit into that um, and how, how we sort of save money upstream in our healthcare system. Yeah. And so just sort of wanted to like name that that's an interesting piece of this puzzle. Yeah. And I would join with you. It is one of my nagging pet peeves is the wrong that implies that it's small. My nagging frustrations. We know healthcare 101. We know that what contributes to someone's health, to the health of the community has little to do with what happens in the clinical setting. Mm-hmm. You know, it has to do with all the things you mentioned, plus environment, plus you know, I don't know if you mentioned access to good food. I did not. Uh, but... Yeah. And, you know, we know what it is. It, and it, and yet we put all of our energy into figuring out what to do better in the clinical setting. And right. maybe I should say all of our energy because I live in the, in the world where we focus on that. But, <laughs> but you know, the, you know, what you're suggesting or the, my takeaway from that is that we really need a true public health frame in uh, help Vermonters get healthy and stay healthy. And and I think there's a lot of models out there. People know how to do this. Mm-hmm. And I just think it's a very different question to say, how do I treat the people in my panel? You know, I'm talking as a doctor. How do we treat the people who go to this hospital who have diabetes or who have depression versus how do we treat the community? You know, our community is sick with anxiety and depression. X percent, seven, eight percent have major depression. That's a lot. How, you know, what's the right way to treat our community to improve people's lives is a very different question and results in different answers. And I think we in this country and this state have devalued and defunded our public health infrastructure. And that's a big system-wide reform frame. And I think it's a particularly poignant one in these times where we're about to really think very deeply about how we fund and construct new housing, what the role of our public schools are and can be for sort of solving society's ills. And yeah. as we recover from COVID and think about sort of what people need to be, you know, healthy in their yeah. communities. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mike thank you. Fisher from the Office of the Vermont Healthcare Advocate. For those who listen to the podcast, I'll be linking to the contact information in the show notes, but it would be great, Mike, if you would remind us one more time of that 1-800 number. 1-800-917-7787. I've gotten good at that one. Yeah, you're like, uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> and Emily, if people want to find out more about you or get in contact with you, how can they do that? Folks can go to emilykornheiser.org and you'll find links to all the ways to be in touch. I would also like to make a public service announcement that there are free COVID tests at the Brattleboro Library. And despite me saying this many times, none of my even like friends seem to know this. So I just want to like say it again. You don't need to buy them at Rite Aid. They are free at the library. And that's Brooks Memorial Library on Main It Street. is indeed. But maybe other libraries have them for free too. I don't know. I just know that the Brattleboro Library is wonderful and has free COVID tests. Well, as always, the Montpelier Happy Hour is on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro every Friday at 2 p.m. and rebroadcast on Wednesday morning. And you can also find us wherever you subscribe to your podcasts. So have a great weekend, everyone. Take care. Thank you. Thank you.